Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Wall. According to Food First NL, food security exists when all people, at all times, have physical and economic access to sufficient, safe, culturally appropriate, and nutritious food that meets their dietary needs and food preferences and allows them to have an active and healthy life. Food self-sufficiency was traditionally higher in our province as people hunted, fished, foraged, and preserved wild food. Things like rising costs of gear and demands on our time and the effects of climate change in our waters have changed our access to reliable food patterns. Newfoundland is cut off from Canada by the ocean, and Labrador consists of many isolated towns. This isn't news to us, but food which is frequently transported by ferry or plane can take a long time, and a lot of the time it's not fresh even when it arrives. To achieve optimal food security in our province, we have to build a healthy and sustainable food system. The provincial government is committed to increasing the province's self-sufficiency by working with farmers and other partners. And Food First NL is a provincial nonprofit organization that works with a network of over 300 organizations and individuals in communities in Newfoundland and Labrador to improve this food security. So this week, we welcome Joshua Smee, CEO of Food First NL. He's going to tell us more about the challenges we have for food security in Newfoundland and Labrador and what Food First NL is doing to increase understanding and awareness, build strong and diverse networks, and support actions across sectors at the local, regional, provincial, and even the national levels. These are all aimed to improve food security in our province. Let's check it out. Hey, Josh, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. I should actually say welcome back to the show because this is the second time we had you on around the holidays talking about what you guys do uh, at Food First NL. Can you can you give me a bit of background for everybody listening? Sure, yeah. So Food First, we're a provincial nonprofit organization. We've been around a bit more than 20 years now. Uh, and what we do is connect all the different work that's happening on food in this province. So uh, we work on food security. That's a really big term. We can get into what that means, but basically... Day-to-day, our work is connecting people with each other, providing resources for great ideas around food, being a voice for food security issues at policy tables and, and, and with government, uh, and trying just in general to, to move Newfoundland and Labrador towards uh, better food security at both like household and the, the systemic level. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a that's a huge responsibility. We know that uh, there's challenges around food and access to food for different people. So let's just get that uh, definition out of the way now. Like, tell me what food security is. And I know this might take a little while because it's so. Yeah, no, it's fine. Yeah, I, there's a I think it's actually worth diving into and thinking about the, the definition here, because mm-hmm. it the definition of food security, I check in with it all the time. My staff does, too, because it, it really drives our work, which is that food security exists when all people at all times, have physical and economic access to adequate amounts of nutritious, safe, and culturally appropriate food. Mm -hmm. So that's a big one, right? When you just, I always stop and take a step back and say, like, what would need to change in the world for that to be true? Because we are not there. Uh, And uh, so that's what really defines the work that Food First does, is how can we chip away at some of the things that are barriers to that being true for everyone in this province? Yeah, and it has to be a lot of uh, factors. You said a whole bunch of things. You talked about monetary aspects. You talked about cultural aspects because you know we recently got back from Labrador, where the you know traditional diet is much different than the European diet, uh, for example. And so, what are some of the factors that impact food security for you know the people in our province in particular? Yeah, so the the biggest one is definitely income. We know that. So there are a lot of people in this province who just don't have the money they need to to purchase the food that works for them. And like you said, 
the food that works for anyone might be totally different than the food that works for their next door neighbor or the food that works for someone in a different community. And, and But at the root of a lot of food insecurity is just not having the money to buy that food. So you might be, for example, a family with kids, uh, raising kids on a single income, it's really challenging to put just adequate amounts of food on the table. Mm -hmm. You might be someone who uh, want, has to eat a culturally or medically specific diet. And, and in that case, it's accessing a really specific set of foods. There's all kinds of different ways, but at the core of so much of that is, is poverty and lack of income. We, we know that that's the biggest barrier to food access in the province, but that's not the only barrier, right? We also have a lot of geographic barriers to food security here. And so for someone at the household level, like you or me or anyone listening, those geographic barriers might be between you and your food. So what happens if you live somewhere, for example, and don't have access to a private vehicle? Uh, so what are your food options? It might be only what's within an easy walk of your house. And for lots of Newfoundlanders and Labradorians, that's not much. Mm -hmm. uh, and then at the system level, of course, we are at the far end of a really long supply chain, right? This, uh, particularly folks on the island in Newfoundland, but also the north coast of Labrador, you know, depend on things coming in by boats and, and uh, often through difficult weather conditions. And so there is also that physical aspect of, of accessing food there. So, yeah, it really, you have to get at it from both sides. And, and so economic access is a big part of it, but it's not the whole picture of what a really healthy food system would look like. That would also mean really improving how people can get at the food that makes sense for them. Yeah, and you're right. And the, and the, the socioeconomic aspect is such an important thing. The social determinants of health dictate long-term health as well. And you know, if people don't have money to buy healthy food, then it, they can't maintain their health as easily and they don't have the advantage that other people may have. And so that you know, it does impact us in so many different ways when we think about the challenges we have in our province. So why don't we just do a few stats here to let us understand the magnitude of the problem in Newfoundland and Labrador, like how many people are battling food security? Yeah, so the best data we have is the most recent data is from 2019. So this is before the pandemic, for good or for ill. And at that time in this province, just short of 18%. So basically one in five households is food insecure. And food insecurity can mean a couple of things, right? It's It could mean that you don't know where your next meal is coming from. Uh, so, it, uh, you know, that something's looming in the future, that you're living kind of right on the edge, all the way to, to what you'd call, you know, hunger, that you're, you just don't have enough calories and, and you're suffering health consequences. But we talk about it all grouped together because people move between those categories really fluidly, mm -hmm. right? Uh, you might be one day worried where your next meal is coming from and then something goes wrong. You know, your, your car has a flat tire right? So you have to spend some money somewhere else and suddenly you don't have money for food and suddenly you're in a really difficult position. And so we talk about food security groups like that and it's about one in five people. We also know that it's not evenly distributed. So it's not one in five two-parent households, for example. Yes. You know, we know that if you're a single-parent household, your risk is probably closer to 30, 35% of those households are food insecure. Wow. Um, if you're on income support, you're probably 60, 65% of income houses on households on income support are food insecure. Uh, we know nationally black households and indigenous households are way more at risk. And that has to do with historical access to resources, right? You know, like mm -hmm. folks who've been oppressed for a long time, don't have the same fallback in their, you know, family and social support network. There's just not as much resources around when something goes wrong in your life, right? Mm -hmm. So it is a really severe problem. We don't know yet really how the pandemic impacted that. 
you know, anecdotally, when there was money flowing from CERB uh, and a few of those other benefit programs, it, it probably improved things. Uh, and then now we're probably in a worse position because as anyone who's listening to this knows, the cost of food is skyrocketing and with economic access, the biggest issue, I am sure that number is way higher than 18 or 20% right now. We're here with Joshua Smee, CEO of Food First NL, to learn more about the challenges of food security in Newfoundland and Labrador and what Food First NL is doing to help. We'll be right back after the break. Welcome back. We're here with Joshua Smee, CEO of Food First NL, to learn more about the challenges of food security in Newfoundland and Labrador and what Food First NL is doing to help. Let's get back to the interview. When we think about food, we look at like whether the shelves are empty, whether the price or whatever, but we don't really think about how it's produced. So maybe you can explain a little bit about the supply chain and like the interconnectedness of the food system that's out there, because that obviously is why costs are going up, is it not? So yeah, there's a few things going on right now and, and you're exactly right. So I, I think this is one thing you have to be careful about talking about food in Newfoundland and Labrador is that our food system is really the world's food system, right? Uh, somewhere between 70 and 90% of what we eat is coming in from outside of the province. We don't have exact data on that, to be honest with you, because it's pretty tricky to measure, but we know the vast majority of our food comes from outside. As much as we're doing to improve self-sufficiency, that's not going to change anytime super soon. There's a lot of work mm -hmm. to do to change that. And so that means that when things happen in the big wide world, they hit everybody in this province pretty fast. So we're seeing food prices shoot up right now. There's a few things happening. Some of that's due to the conflict in the Ukraine. For example, mm -hmm. uh, the pandemic really hit food prices for a while because it was affecting processing plants in particular. So one of the reasons you saw for meat get really expensive was because uh, COVID was shutting down uh, meatpacking plants on the mainland. Uh, and that impacts food prices here. So there's all of these interconnections with um, with a really global food economy that includes a lot of people who honestly are not being treated particularly well in their workplaces. And so one of the other sides of this is sometimes food prices go up because maybe folks at the other end of your food chain are have negotiated a better deal and maybe they're getting paid a bit better. Yeah. And so not all of it's not always a, a signal of something bad. But the other thing we know that's happening is that climate change is really starting to impact this. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, we are in this global food system and it's a pretty much a guarantee now that every year there will be a climate emergency somewhere that really affects food production, right? It could be like last year, there were big droughts and fires. Um, it could be a crop failure in, in another part of the world, but it's a good bet these days that every year something like that's gonna happen and that's gonna impact how much our food costs and what we can access in Newfoundland and Labrador. And so I think one of the things we have to wrap our heads around actually is that food prices are likely to keep going up. Yeah. That's not, even when the, this, the Ukraine conflict winds up, it's more up than down on this. And that's one of the things in our line of work, we're trying to figure out what do we do about that? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you just quickly on that Ukraine thing, Ukraine's one of the largest wheat producers in the world, are they not? Yeah. Yeah, they're, they're a huge wheat producer. And most of the wheat that was harvested this year is trapped there, is not being let out. So for lots of folks around the world, that's actually going to be a really catastrophic thing because there are loads of people for whom that's a really core part of their diet is, you know, bread. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, and most of that wheat is imported from places like the Ukraine. And so mm -hmm. it is really going to have echoes, you know, and I, it won't be as difficult, obviously, on someone living in St. John's as it would be on someone living in, in say, uh, Southern Africa, but it will be a big hit and it is already impacting people. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's less on the market around the world. Okay, so, uh, you know, Newfoundland never used to have this big supply chain that used to be able to supply food with us from all over the world. We were self-sufficient in a lot of ways, and it was probably a really hard struggle, but people used to fish and hunt and forage farm. You know, what are some of the things that have changed in our province that made us migrate away from those traditional ways of surviving? Biggest thing was confederation. So when we joined Canada, uh, and the trade barriers dropped between Canada and, and Newfoundland and the island in particular, Canadian imports were cheaper. Uh, and that's still true, right? So um, before Confederation, we were self-sufficient because we had to be uh, and because there were taxes on things being brought in and out. And when, when we joined Canada, suddenly you could bring something in from a farm in, say, the Annapolis Valley in Nova Scotia mm -hmm. uh, or, or Ontario or the West. And it's still true and it still affects our local food systems that, and that's going to be true, is that it's never gonna be cheaper to produce food here than in, in other places. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's always gonna be a challenge. So, you know, I saw some recent data from the agricultural census just came out and we have lost about half of our farmland in the last 20 years. So between 2001 and 2021, mm -hmm. we went from 40,000 hectares to 20,000 in production, right? Um, so this is an ongoing story and it's a real challenge uh, because you know there are other parts, as long as our food system is so globalized, mm -hmm. there are other parts of the world where it is just gonna be cheaper to produce. The yeah. one thing that might change that though, is that as we get farther and farther into the climate crisis, actually, mm. um, fuel prices are going up. Um, they probably will need to go up even higher. If we get really serious about dealing with climate change and the carbon tax keeps rising, which it probably should, eventually that may affect, again, the kind of the balance between how much it costs to bring something in or grow it here. So that's a big question for the future. Mm -hmm. And that's one thing to think about, about our local food systems going forward is like, how do we insulate ourselves against our global food systems can get shaken up in a really different way now, yep. both uh, by climate change, but also by the things that we're doing to try and fight climate change. Both are having impacts there. The last thing on this one is like also important. We shouldn't romanticize what eating was like in Newfoundland pre-Confederation either, right? People were growing their own. They were very self-sufficient, but we also had a lot of, you know, people were getting scurvy and beriberi. There were many, there was like deep poverty and deep malnutrition. And we sometimes forget that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like I, one of the strengths of our food system is that it's not that far away. Some of these traditional food skills, right? So people of like our parents or our grandparents still, especially I'd say like our grandparents generation would still remember how to do things in a traditional way, in a way that's longer lost elsewhere. But they also remember a time when that those kind of really severe malnutrition was a big part of people's lives. So you sometimes, um, have to be, uh, I think, a little bit careful about thinking about, you know, the way we used to eat before, because a lot of it was real hardship. Yes. Yeah. 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 We have a tendency to do that all the time. Somebody, oh. uh, there was a TV show that was out years ago and one of my professors was on it and he had to go to an island and, and fish and dry his cod and get value for how good he did. And they graded it. It was quite an interesting thing. And, you know, another thing that just reminded me of was, um, you know, Toronto used to be called Hogtown because there were so many pig farms, yeah. but it, then it became more valuable to put real estate there because they could ship in stuff from the Midwest or wherever. So, yeah, I mean, I can see how it when it, when there's growing seasons that are 12 months a year, that's where you're going to grow the food, <laughs> you yeah. know? So, okay. Well, that's, that's, that really clarified a lot for me. That's good. So a, a lot of the food that we eat is imported. 
the impacts we've talked about are things like the financial cost of them. But what about the quality of the food? Like what other factors are impacted if we're only bringing food in? Like the freshness I could think of as one thing being up north, yeah. for example. Yeah, so that's the obvious one. I think that's the one that that anyone in this province can identify with going to a store and finding some something, especially produce at the far end of this supply chain, having it rot away to nothing uh, in your kitchen the next day. Right. Um, so that that's a real thing, especially the way that many of our supply chains work. So lots of food comes into on the island portion of the province would come in by truck across the ferry, drive to St. John's, mm. go to a warehouse here and then be redistributed. So if you're buying food uh, at a supermarket in Central, you're probably buying food that 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 has been sitting in St. John's for a while, having driven past your supermarket on its way. Oh, wow. uh, so, you know, there are real uh, challenges with with that. I think also there's it's harder to measure, but there's the the sort of less tangible cultural part of eating food that's really familiar and uh, really has a sense of place to it, right? Mm-hmm. So, food that was grown locally has local history, right? There might be a variety of carrots that you're, that's been growing in a particular garden in your town for decades, right? That's not the same as you'd be getting from, uh, you know, from the grocery store. There's a lot of this intangible meaning that we attach to food. And one of the like most important things we can talk about a food is there's ceremony to it, right? The, The consumption of food is such an important part of our social lives. And I think a lot of that is what we lose from having less localized food systems, right? So think mm. of think of some of the most special meals you might've had a chance to eat and, and probably a lot of them are ones where you had some kind of emotional or uh, connection with the person who produced it for you. Maybe you grew mm-hmm. yourself, maybe you bought it from a farmer or producer, yep. but I think, you know, that's, uh, unfortunately, that kind of eating is a bit of a luxury for, for most people, but there, there is real benefit there. And you see that, you know, for, uh, and there's a lot of work around this, particularly in the medical system, that people really benefit from having food that they feel more rooted in, that it can mm. help on people's healing journey. You know, if, if you're in the hospital and you have a choice between sort of a generic plate of something out of the steamer or or the meal that you would have eaten at home, you know, those actually have a, a real contribution to to how to your wellness in a more tangible way. So I think there's there are things we lose totally from having that that disconnection that we do have. Yeah, it's, it's so interesting too. And Newfoundland is one of the unique places, I think, in the world where our, our food is celebrated around the world when people try it for the first time. Forget, we think about the Ross Larkins of the world, the Jeremy Charles or Todd Perrins. These guys are cooking traditional foods for people from away and they're like celebrating it. But yet a lot of the time we don't rely on those foods for ourselves in our own home province when it's right at our fingertips, which is really kind of interesting. Now you talked a lot about supply chain and we're going to talk a little bit about like what you guys do. So imagine that, you know, we got bad weather, the ferries are delayed, the, the shelves are empty how do we distribute food to people like even the most basic stores, but then also the people that need it most, like that's gotta be a huge challenge. It is really tricky. I think there's a couple of things we've been trying to do to take a crack at this one. One of them is just thinking about what do our our more local supply chains look like, right? So if you have a store, uh, a small store in a small community in this province, can you readily stock that store with food that's grown or made in the community where that store is? And that's not always easy, right? Because um, the supply chain logistics for the for retailers are also pretty long. It's often big companies on long contracts. And there's not an equivalent way of bridging between the many small producers we have and some of the buyers. And one of the things you see in this province is that challenge. So 
Another big one here would be, you know, what happens when, say, a hospital or a school says, hey, we'd love to buy uh, all of our carrots locally. They might like to do that, but right now there's not any one farmer who could meet that order. And we don't have a lot of systems for, for aggregating enough for a big buyer to say, I know I can get everything I need from, from so-and-so. Yeah. Uh, and so without that certainty, it can be really hard. So I think there's a couple of, of pieces to this. Um, one of it's around just moving food around. And, and mm -hmm. so how do we have systems where it's easier to get what is produced locally to folks who want to sell it? And that's actually, we've seen some improvement in that uh, the last little while. We ran a pilot that we were hoping to repeat out in Cornerbrook called the Food Hub, uh, which did a little bit of that. So it, what that ended up being was uh, basically an online store where you could order from as many of the local producers as you wanted. And then the food hub took care of getting bulk orders in and packet breaking them up into individual people's um, orders and getting them out to folks. So there are some good business models to get around some of these gaps in local supply chains. Yep. The other thing I think we're really missing in this province is we don't have a lot of capacity to process food. And I don't mean in the sense of like turning it into craft dinner. I mean, just like, uh, taking a carrot and cutting that carrot up into the size of pieces that it needs to be to be served in a school or a hospital, for example, mm. that equipment just is not there. And so uh, by and large, if you're someone who might be growing food and would like to move into what you'd call more value added processing, there's not a lot of opportunity for you to do that. Mm. Uh, and so bridging and there's I, I will I'll give credit where it's due. I think government recognizes that, too. And there's more and more investment being made in shared storage processing because I think that's the other piece to it is, you know, if you can't get something done locally, uh, then there's not much to do about, about bridging those gaps in the, in the supply chain. So uh -huh. we'll see. I think there's, there's more and more realization now of how much opportunity there is in that area. We have a big project now for the next couple of years uh, called Great Things in Store that we just launched. That that's exactly what we're going to be doing is working with retailers to figure out, okay, what can we do together? To, to change what's in your store, to work with you, to, to make food more accessible to more people. And that, and so I'm really curious to say what they'll, what retailers will say to us actually about yeah. you know, what's in their way. Cause we don't always know. I, I love that name. Great things in store. Yeah. I, I think that a lot of people don't know that our farmland on the West coast is almost as good as PEI in certain places too. Right. Totally. We do have a lot of rich production yeah. capacity in this province. It's not, we're not, uh, it's not all rocks, right? We're here with Joshua Smee, CEO of Food First NL, to learn more about the challenges of food security in Newfoundland and Labrador and what Food First NL is doing to help. We'll be right back after the break. Welcome back. We're here with Joshua Smee, CEO of Food First NL, to learn more about the challenges of food security in Newfoundland and Labrador and what Food First NL is doing to help. Let's get back to the interview. Okay, so let's talk about the the services that you guys offer. Like if people need help because they're facing food insecurity, uh, where do they get it? How can they work with organizations like yours? Yeah, so this is an area actually Food First moved into a little bit more actively during the pandemic. Because uh, again, thinking about this kind of gaps in the systems, when COVID started, we realized there just wasn't any kind of one-stop shop where you could go to find out where to go for help with food. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we've been cobbling one together over the last couple of years. It started as an Excel spreadsheet that one of my staff was doing on, uh, you know, in her spare time. And now it's a, a quite a large program called the Community Food Helpline. So the way that works now is actually what we're doing is we encourage people to call 211. And I don't know if you've talked to anyone from 211 on your show, but 
Another thing that happened during the pandemic was this service was added. Two-on-one is a navigation service for all kinds of social services. So you could call them and say, I'm in a real situation here. I'm getting evicted from my apartment. I have no money for food. And they have the database of whoever could help you in all these different areas. So they can connect you to every different kind of service. And so we've been working really closely with them to identify all the different food providers. So food banks, meal programs, all those kinds of things in the province, make sure they're in the 211 database. Uh-huh. And so you can call 211. They know how to connect you now to anyone who is available. But the other service we have is um, as part of this community food helpline is a bit of a backstop because one thing that uh, folks are finding uh, is just that the the emergency food infrastructure that we got, so food banks and meal programs, it just is not up to the demand that it's seeing. And we've known that for a long time, but that's much mm-hmm. sharper now. Uh, and so we run into a lot of people who have who call two on one and say, I've already tried every food bank that you connect me to. I can't go anymore because often you can only go once a month. What do yeah. I do? And so we also have a community food helpline service that does in those situations, we have a budget for gift cards. So, you know, if people are really oh. stuck, they get they leave a message and we can usually arrange to send them a little uh, a, a gift card to help with groceries. Still a stopgap. Uh, and it's yeah. meant to kind of fill these gaps. And the whole system in, is really a stopgap there. We saw some good data on this during the pandemic. It's uh, of all the people who are food insecure, like folks who could reach out for help, less than 10% do. So for every one person that goes to a food bank, there's nine people who could go to a food wow. bank. And so that means that like the the level, it's just an iceberg of demand, right? That's why we know that we can't get at it from, from that side. We can fill some gaps, but really for us to the other pieces, we're trying to push as hard as we can on anything that will get more money into the pockets of folks at the lowest end of the income spectrum. So increasing yeah. income support, increasing the minimum wage, a guaranteed basic income, like that's what's actually going to solve this. Uh-huh. But in the interim, we are trying to keep a little bit of an infrastructure around to say like, while we're trying to get more money flowing here, let's at least coordinate as much as we can, what services are, are out there for people. Wow. Yeah. That's uh that's, that's, very scary, actually, when you say that, you know, one in 10 that are food insecure are really availing of these. And I, I've got to admit, I never heard of 201. So thank you for bringing that up. And we'll be sure to get some information to our, our listeners on that as well, because it sounds like it's a, a great resource that helps people navigate something that sounds very complex if there's a lot of different organizations doing totally. it. Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the things about food support is for good or for ill, we've kind of handed it over to volunteer organizations to support people with food. Mm-hmm. That means there's so many of them. You know, there's probably upwards of 100 organizations in our small province doing emergency food work of some kind. And that's a lot for people to figure out and figure out what door to knock on, you know? But that's right. And so that relies on individuals and companies to play a role in supporting these initiatives. What, what opportunities do you see for people to say, look, this is something that I would like to help out with? Yeah, I mean, I think... Um, I think there is still value in donating and supporting these programs, even though like we can recognize that they're not going to solve the problem, but you don't want to leave people worse off. And so I think like what I always say to people is donate if you can donate cash, if you can, because that's much more useful than food for most of these programs. But then every time you donate, go out and write a letter or call your MP or your MHA and say like, what are you doing about this? So that this doesn't happen Mm -hmm. anymore. Cause Mm -hmm. that whole system, food banks, it seems like they've been around forever, but they haven't. They were they were created for the first time around the time I was born. Okay. Um, you know, and there was a recession in the 80s. We said, we just got to set up these food bank things just for a couple of years to get people through it. And we're 40 years on, 
right? Yeah. And so you have to be really careful about, you know, what kind of solutions happen here. And so I, I'm just say, I always say to people, like, get involved, help out, but also advocate, right? Push, because otherwise we're going to get stuck, you know, in this, in this trap. Mm-hmm. Yeah, agreed. Uh, yeah, it's funny. So I guess I'm older than you because I was born in the 70s. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah. no one out you there, buddy. Yeah, you got me out. It's all good. Um, okay, so we've talked about the challenges. We've sort of talked about some of the programming is going around. Let's talk about some specific things. So what is the food assessment that you guys have been uh, working on as a project? Yeah, so we've been doing these for a good number of years in communities around the province. And we do what's called a community-led food assessment. It's basically what it sounds like which is talking to a community, as many people as you can hear from, about what do food systems look like in their community? You know, what do they want to see happen with food? How do they want to have access to food? What's missing? We used to do them and we have done them in a number of small communities. So up and down the north coast of Labrador on the south coast of the island. This last couple of years, we've been working on a much bigger one in St. John's, which is a totally different thing. So our food assessment in Hopedale, 300 people, you can pretty much talk to the whole community. That's not what you can do in St. John's, obviously. But we did. We spent now upwards of 18 months consulting with the community all sorts of ways, everything from surveys to focus groups to taking people on walks. We have a pretty good sense now of what people in St. John's want to see happen around food, where the gaps are. And and so where that's moving is into, they'll be in June later this month. It's already June. We'll be releasing an action plan with some some concrete kind of next steps. Mm. And that with a food assessment in general, that's what you always want to do is there's always a third phase after you you plan it, you ask people all this stuff, but then the third phase is do something about it. Because you really want to, you know, bring something back to a community who spent all their time sharing with you. And so we're doing a few big projects. I think one of the things we're looking at in St. John's in particular is, can we do something around that physical access to food piece, right? Because if you're particularly someone in town living with low income, Lots of folks don't have access to a vehicle. A vehicle is mm-hmm. very expensive. And if you don't have access to a vehicle, your access to food can be really limited depending on what part of the city you live in. So are there are there some ways to solve that, to get food to people where they are? I think that's one area we, we really want to work on. And there'll be a few others probably coming out of that assessment. But it's basically, it's all grounded in, in just talking to people at the neighborhood level and, and hearing from them and and figuring out, you know, what what are those, those gaps? So that's yeah. going to drive... A bunch of work around here, not just for us too. There's um, there's a lot of work happening on food in St. John's. There's a, a food policy council that the city has that we co-chair. There's a new healthy city strategy in mm. St. John's. So everyone's kind of trying to wrap their head around what do you do about food in the city? And that's a nice thing to see actually. We're here with Joshua Smee, CEO of Food First NL, to learn more about the challenges of food security in Newfoundland and Labrador and what Food First NL is doing to help. We'll be right back after the break. Welcome back. We're here with Joshua Smee, CEO of Food First NL, to learn more about the challenges of food security in Newfoundland and Labrador and what Food First NL is doing to help. Let's get back to the interview. There's another program you've got called Rethinking Food Charity. How did COVID-19 sort of affect food charity and the community food programs? I'd assume that people donated more, maybe? I don't know. The exact reverse, actually. Wow. Uh, So one of the things that's, so this goes back to what we were talking about, how there's this kind of mountain or iceberg of need that's under the surface here. And over COVID, uh, most food programs found their donations really fell off a cliff. 
Some of that was because of income, right? So many people's household incomes were hit by COVID that they just didn't have the money to donate anymore. Uh, And so that was a real challenge. And we haven't seen those donation patterns recover yet. I think some people may have gotten out of the habit of giving in the way that they had. At the same time, what happened was um, many of those programs were relying on volunteer labor that couldn't happen during the pandemic in the same way. So particularly older folks who are in high risk for, for COVID were not always able to say, come down and staff a food pantry in the same way. So there was a labor force crunch, there was a donation crunch, and the cost of food started shooting up. So everything was more expensive. And you couldn't usually run your programs the same way because you couldn't have 100 people in a room for a meal. Right. right. And so lots of uh, emergency food providers started spending money on delivery, which I think is actually a really good thing Mm -hmm. overall, Mm -hmm. because one thing you've seen is that there's a lot of stigma, obviously, attached for reaching out for help of food. Right. Um, Lining up in front of the food bank, your neighbors see you standing there, all this kind of stuff. Uh, And so when as delivery services have gotten bigger, more and more people have been reaching out for help because they can do it more privately. Right. Um, But I think where this rethinking food charity process is going to go is this is really, I think, a good time for us just to reflect on that whole model. You know, as I said, it's been 40 years, basically, we've been running aid with food in this way, kind of by accident. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we want to now check in first and foremost with low income folks who are the ones who are either accessing these programs or who don't. Like we really want to hear from people who thought about it and decided not to knock on that door mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to get a sense of, you know, what, what do you need out of this system? Like what would make things work better for you? And to talk to food programs too and say, you know, where are the barriers? What's stopping you from doing things in a different way? Um, you know, what are the things you're thinking about that you'd like some support to do? So for example, there are food banks who are moving away from the kind of give you a box of, of random things model and yeah. opening up effectively a grocery store where people can walk through, pick from shelves. So much less food is wasted that way because they get what they actually need. Yeah. And so there's there's kind of innovations like that within the food programs that we want to hopefully entrench a little bit, but also really get this whole system kind of on board, pushing for the kind of systems change that would make it less needed in the future, right? Like yeah. food banks, they see the reality of this on the ground and meal programs do, and, and they can be really powerful voices to say to government in particular, be like, you, you got to change this. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I think part of that rethinking food charity is, you know, rethinking mm-hmm. that relationship uh, and rethinking even, should we have any of these programs at all? Should they look like what they look now? And I'm not sure that the answer is, is yes. There's a program in, um, in Scotland that's doing a similar dialogue and they just called it no more food banks because mm-hmm. they were really explicit about, trying to get to that society at the other end where people were food secure enough that they didn't need them. And so I think that's kind of where this is hopefully going to go is, Mm -hmm. you know, getting people on board with a vision of how to get to something a little bit more sustainable on the other side of it. Well, and I think that, you know, getting people on board requires them being acknowledged. And so this community consultation allows people that are actually being impacted by it to see why are we, why or why are we not participating? I think that's a genius approach and allows you to find out, not what you think is right, but what you know, it's, you can't measure it. You can't, you know, you can't totally prove right. it validate. Yeah, that's cool. You know, when it comes to the stakeholders, uh, would it be the organizations that are providing the food bank or the users or government? Who's all involved? Yeah, we've kind of got two two chunks, right? So we're running one process with low-income Newfoundlanders and Labradorians. And that's a separate process for a good reason, because we don't want to actually really want to put people necessarily in the same room with a food program that has a lot of power over you. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, are you going to be comfortable saying, 
you know, my local meal program, I don't like what they're doing if the person for the meal program sitting right there. And so we're, we, we're trying to do these in parallels and present what we're hearing from, from one group to the other. So we'll be, uh, we'll have a chance to say, Hey, food brands, here's what your clients are saying. Mm -hmm. uh, and also to the, to the folks who are using them. Hey, Hey folks, here's what the food programs are thinking about. What do you think on that? So we're trying to play a bit of a bridging role, but there's really two parallel tracks. One with the food programs and and the associated kind of government folks who support that work, and then one with low income folks, not just people who use them, but also, like I said, really people who don't, because we mm -hmm. want to hear, you know, if you're a person who doesn't have enough money for food but has never thought to go or has decided not to go, why is that, and and what what could we do to support you in a different way? And so, yeah, you kind of got to keep those tracks separate though, because it's uh, that's one of the challenges, is especially in this province, we're a small province, right, and so. You know, we all know each other, and that's one of the the stigma barriers around accessing support with food. Is mm -hmm. that you know the folks? It's not an anonymous person handing you that hamper or serving you that meal. It's probably yeah. someone from your community, and so there might not be a safe space to talk about it. Otherwise, yeah. mental health is the same thing. People are afraid because they're going to see somebody, and that's why these digital apps that allow people to look like they're texting, talking to a counselor, are the great because they break down barriers and and we need to get rid of those stigmas especially if so many people are being affected by it now you've done some consultation now and you've worked with stakeholders you've modeled some programs that are being done in other parts of the world what are the next steps for us here at home on the rethinking food charity work we were just finished doing a big survey with low-income folks another big survey with programs we're actually going to be doing regional things now for the next little while. Because I think the other thing about doing work in Newfoundland Labrador is not to assume that the challenges are the same on the Buran Peninsula as in Southern Labrador or, 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 or Central Newfoundland. Yeah. So we're going to be doing focus grouping with low-income folks and with food programs, region by region by region, just to hear from them saying, like, what does the system look like here for you on, say, the Northern Peninsula? Mm -hmm. Because we that's another big piece of this. Uh, and then I, the other thing that's going to happen is some province-wide conversation around like big common issues. So, um, you know, can we connect with some of the big national organizations who are doing things a bit differently and do some, some training or some education for the food programs? Or could we connect with some of the national groups who are working with low-income folks to really do some empowerment work around like how to advocate or effectively uh, if you're a, a client of these programs? So I think there'll be a ton of this back and forth dialogue for the next few months and then We'll be trying to put together some kind of report and recommendations that says, you know, this is what this system could look like uh, mm -hmm. if we have the guts to change it. And I have honestly no idea what that's going to look like on purpose, because that's what these conversations are meant to to kind of generate. And I, I'm as curious as you to see what 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 do people want to see at the other side? Mm -hmm. No, that's interesting. I'll be curious to see what you guys learn at the end of the day, because this consultation is such a big process. So, OK, so if somebody wants to find out more information or get involved, how can they contact you guys to get more info? So the easiest way, we have a whole bunch of websites, but foodfirstnl.ca is the easiest way. You'll find contacts for the different programs and staff there. Uh, follow us on the socials. And we, we have a monthly newsletter, a pretty extensive one, that if you're interested in these issues, that's a pretty reliable place to, that'll bring everything together, both what we're doing and, and what we're hearing from our partners. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, any last thoughts you want to leave folks with? This is such a relevant topic. We learned a lot about it today, but what, what's your parting words for us? I just think now is actually a really good time to be getting involved with these issues. Um, so we talked a bit about the social determinants of health. And uh, I sat on the Health Accord Task Force this year. And if you read that Health Accord report, food is all over that document um, because they really understand that, that 
you know, if we're going to make a change in how food works and how food security works for people in this province, that that is one of the ways that we're going to build a health system that can function, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so I think there's just, there's a ton happening around that. There'll be a new, um, the province is calling it, I think, a social and economic well-being plan. So there's going to be a bunch of consultations coming on that in the next couple of months. We're going to, there's going to be an all-party committee on basic income. And so there's just going to be so many chances for the government in particular is going to be reaching out and asking people, what do you think should we do about this? And so like put your food hat on and go into these things. And the more that they hear people really pushing for those big shifts in how we deal with this, the stronger that change could be. So I think it's, it's a really exciting. No other province in Canada has as many kind of doors open to really changing how they do food security, but doesn't mean we're going to walk through them. So we're trying to make sure that, that everyone gets out and just gets their, you know, gets their voice heard on this stuff. I love it. And, and you coming on today and sharing all the stuff that you guys are doing and how relevant the topic is, is really important for getting you know people motivated to make a difference. So thank you so much for taking the time today, Josh. I know you're really busy, but it was great having you here today. Thanks, Mike. Always a pleasure. Thank you to Josh for joining me today. As we heard, Newfoundland and Labrador has its own specific challenges when it comes to food security, be it our rural population or food distribution and shipping challenges, or even these days, the overall cost. With one in six Canadian children under the age of 18 being affected by household food insecurity, it's a major problem. For a family of four, it can cost over $1,100 a month to eat minimally nutritious food here in our province. Household food insecurity is directly related to health issues including heart disease and diabetes, and children who are food insecure may have more frequent instances of health problems. These are significant concerns, which is why next week we continue our discussion by looking at the topic of food waste and how some organizations are working to put food that may have previously been wasted into the hands of those that need it most. It's our first two-part series of this show, but we hope you can tune in. Until then, I'm your host, Dr. Mike Wall. We'll see you back here next week for part two of our series on food security and food waste on your VOCM. <laughs>